back to another episode of the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you the tools to develop a balanced approach to health. Today is another very fun episode. It is a Q&A episode, and I think these are the ones that I really enjoy the most because it allows us to interact with our audience and see what the topics on everyone's mind are. So without further, further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Our first question today is, while on three milligrams of finasteride per week, Will five grams of creatine per day destroy my hair gains since it increases DHT, or can I take both without risk? So for this question, um, I wanna focus on the ending. Uh, can I take both without risk? Uh, so the answer there is no, because every supplement or medication has a potential harm, a potential risk, and then also potential benefit. So creatine is very widely studied. It's probably the most well-studied sports supplement and it is generally well tolerated. You know, some people will still have things like cramping or bloating that occur, um, but it, in general, people tend to do well on it. Um, so the question is, will it affect hair loss in general? So finasteride in general is going to prevent further hair loss and a lot of times get some regrowth, uh, particularly if it's a younger individual taking this. So I've actually seen blood work of people using creatine and finasteride concurrently um, finasteride by itself and they start using creatine afterwards and there is maybe a one point difference in the serum DHT level. So it's not going to in general cause a big increase in your hair loss. Uh, could creatine theoretically in an individual cause some sort of hair loss that's not typical? Absolutely. Now we have medications, uh, think of something like trazodone for sleep sometimes um, that is also have, uh, is also reported to have hair loss as a side effect. So just because something doesn't commonly occur doesn't mean that it's impossible for it to occur. Uh, our next question is how to prevent PFS before it starts. So PFS is an acronym for post-finasteride syndrome. And post-finasteride syndrome is a persistent condition where someone has taken something like finasteride reduce their DHT levels, and then they have dysfunction afterwards, whether that is cognitive dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, whatever it may be, depression, it could even be. Um, so it's, it's kind of a broad range, and there is a, um, there's a continuum of how severe the symptoms are. There's a spectrum of how severe the symptoms are. So some people may have some mild side effects that resolve two weeks after stopping the medication. Other people may have side effects that have lasted for years. And as far as what actually leads to those changes, there are changes in neurosteroid levels. And you have steroids, neurosteroids that are dependent on the 5-alpha reductase enzyme that gets blocked with things like finasteride or dutasteride. Um, and this is mainly the conversion of progesterone into allopregnanolone that I'm thinking of. Um, and you see altered levels of even pregnenolone itself in the serum, you know, pre-finasteride, someone starts finasteride, you're gonna see the pregnenolone levels drop. Uh, and this is even a progesterone precursor, and pregnenolone is actually at the very top of the sex hormone cascade. So if you're looking at one of these diagrams, you can see that pregnenolone is at the very top there. When people supplement with pregnenolone orally, most of that does get converted to progesterone rather than DHEA. Uh, but interestingly, in the post-finasteride patient population, they have looked at the cerebral spinal fluid and blood levels of these neurosteroids. Um, and people who self-report this condition, they have altered levels from a 
know, baseline general population control group who does not have post-finasteride syndrome. So there is something there. Um, and earlier this year, the FDA actually put a warning label or a, a notice on finasteride that there may be some association with suicidal behavior or suicidal ideation. So uh, I think it is good that this, um, these side effects are gaining some traction. Um, people are going to be aware of it, you know, because there's lots of stories of people taking this, not having a discussion of what the possible side effects are, and then experiencing those as a result. So what can you do before you start taking something like finasteride? Uh, you want to for sure look at your sex hormones. If someone has low or even a borderline low testosterone, uh, pushing androgens down further is probably not a good idea. It's probably going to be a better idea to see, you know, why are the androgens lower or talk about, okay, you, you know, you have a higher risk for developing you know, sexual side effects because we're pushing your total, your net androgens down even lower. Um, and some people, their, you know, their hair and hair loss is going to be more important to them than their sex life. And some people are going to be willing to, you know, lose their hair because they want to preserve a healthy libido or a level that they consider to be healthy. Our next question is, is RU588416 safe? So this is a research chemical and I cannot conclusively say whether this is safe or not. Uh, but basically this one will bind to androgen receptors in the skin. And we see this in a number of different animal studies that have been done and it will prevent the testosterone and DHT from binding there and causing the inflammatory cascade that kicks off miniaturization and loss of the hair follicles. So there's a couple different agents in this general sphere of, of topical hair loss treatments that we're following. Um, you know, RU588-41 being one of those, uh, Clascoterone being another. Some of these are actually topical androgen receptor degraders. So if the androgen receptor is degraded, then you'll have the same net result where DHT is not going to be binding. Um, and the big thing they're looking at is, do these things go systemic? Is it going to affect serum hormone levels? Is it detectable in the blood after X number of hours? So what do we have as far as topicals currently? Um, topical dutasteride is going to kind of fit the bill for what people are looking for here. It's going to bind to the androgen receptors in the skin, in the scalp, without uh, going systemic and lowering your serum DHT levels. Now, topical finasteride will not do that. Topical finasteride, if you're applying it to your scalp, it's going to go systemic and lower your DHT levels. Now, there are some individuals who are taking oral finasteride, they get side effects, they switch to topical finasteride, and they don't have side effects. So what's happening there? Um, one thing that's gonna be different in the metabolism of the drug absorbing through the skin versus orally through the digestive tract being processed by the liver to a large degree is there are metabolites of these drugs like finasteride. And if you're not having a large first pass effect through the liver, you're not going to have as high of a concentration of metabolites. So there may be a subtle difference there that explains why people tolerate topical finasteride better than something like the oral finasteride. Um, but in general, topicals such as caffeine have been shown to have some efficacy. Minoxidil will give you a rather significant increase in hair volume within three or four months. Um, but you will have to continue to use the minoxidil in order to sustain that progress. Uh, prostaglandin analogs like latanoprost are also potent growth sim stimulus, um, but those are more likely to cause scalp irritation and itching. 
So just like we mentioned earlier, there are always potential side effects with medications and supplements. Um, next question is, how does IP6 compare to Myro and D-Chiro-Inositol? So IP6 is inositol hexaphosphate, and this doesn't have a lot of a lot of study data in the patient populations that we're kind of looking at. So in PCOS or people with metabolic syndrome who need to have an insulin sensitizer on board perhaps in conjunction with their lifestyle portion of this, um, the inositol hexaphosphate has mainly been studied as an adjunct in cancer treatment. Um, the overwhelming abundance of evidence is for the myo-inositol, uh, things improving insulin sensitivity, decreasing signs of hyperandrogenism, restoring sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG. So that's what we find ourselves using most frequently in this patient population. Uh, with D-chiro-inositol, uh, there's one interesting thing about that. Um, one study that was in young men showed that it really reduced the serum estrone levels um, and this is a hard study to draw conclusions from because the numbers were very small and there wasn't really a, a goal in mind with this. They just wanted to see how it affected the different serum hormone levels in men. So it did significantly drop the levels of estrone. I don't know if that has been reproduced yet. I actually haven't seen a, you know, a young man who is taking D-chiro inositol and measured before and after estrone levels because it's a lab that is not very commonly tested. but. There are associations with estrone, um, higher levels associated with prostate cancer, higher levels associated with other cancers in women. So that's something that could be potentially interesting. There's just not a lot of strong data there yet. Our next question is, do women who are in menopause need progesterone to protect their uterus or can they just take estrogen alone? Um, this is actually a two-part question, but we'll start there. Um, so for in general, women in menopause uh, should be on a, if they're using a hormone replacement protocol and there's not major contraindications such as a hormone receptor positive breast cancer, they should be using a combination in general. Um, my preference would be to use a transdermal estradiol and an oral progesterone. Um, and the reason for the two is that progesterone has some complementary effects. It can be helpful for sleep quality, can help with anxiety, um, and it can also help with the endothelial function and uh, blood pressure, which is something that more people have as they age is elevated blood pressure. Now, oral progesterone is not for everybody. Um, anytime I hear an influencer or a medical professional saying, everybody needs to do this, I uh, always raise my eyebrows a little bit and listen carefully because it's probably not true. Uh, so some women will take oral progesterone and they will have profound depression. They may have very sensitive GABA receptors and an excess of GABA activity can lead to depression in some cases. Um, someone will take progesterone and they will have you know, cramping or they will have constipation. So it's not for everybody. You can use vaginal progesterone suppositories and still protect the uterus in that way without taking oral progesterone. Um, and then kind of leading into this next question here, what is an ideal progesterone and estrogen number average for menopausal women. So if you're looking for things like protecting cognition, protecting your bones, maintaining insulin sensitivity, the serum estradiol level is what I'm really measuring there. Um, and somewhere around about 50 um, is where I would look at that in the bloodstream. That's 50. And the progesterone, 
it's not something that you're really looking for a serum level on because if you're using oral progesterone, for example, it's gonna be very rapidly metabolized and your blood level is not necessarily gonna be reflective of what it's doing in the tissue. So the way that you monitor your estrogen and progesterone balance is typically, for example, in a woman with, an endo, uh, with a uterus still, you would evaluate the endometrial stripe maybe once a year to make sure that you have adequate opposition of that estrogen. And this is the main risk. And I think what they're asking about is estrogen by itself, that will lead to endometrial proliferation. So you have more cells, more cells that are dividing. Those cells can become atypical and that will increase your risk for uterine cancer if you have, or endometrial cancer, if you have unopposed estrogen postmenopausally. So next question is, what are your thoughts on using Clomid with TRT? Um, so this is not a practice that uh, our clinic uses. I believe there may be one older study out of Europe showing that a very, very high dose of Clomid alongside testosterone may have had some effect on the pituitary and you know, theoretically protecting fertility. I think that's why people would be trying to put these two together. But in practice at a, you know, a true therapeutic TRT, no, it's not going to work. If somebody's taking 10 milligrams of testosterone per week, for example, is Clomid going to override that and increase pituitary signaling? Probably, that's not gonna be a very optimal protocol. If somebody is taking a standard you know, 80 to 120 milligrams of testosterone per week, then the Clomid is gonna have a very small, if any, effect, and it's not gonna be a go-to for uh, either preventing infertility or for optimizing fertility if somebody is on a testosterone treatment. Uh, next question is, I tried Clomid on its own and lost libido, even though my testosterone went up, why? Uh, well, there could be a lot of reasons why libido goes down. It could be stress, it could be um, your metabolic health, um, but looking at Clomid as the variable on its own, um, what we see sometimes is someone will start taking Clomid and they'll, they'll come to us with a story. They went to a urologist and were started on Clomid for their low T um, and they felt good for about two weeks and then they kind of had a peak and then levels started to, or how they felt started to taper off and then sometimes they end up below their baseline with regard to their libido. Um, and there's one study that's actually looked at this and confirmed that men who were put on Clomid and um, asked about their you know, libido pre-Clomid and their libido while on Clomid actually had a drop below the baseline. But you also have studies on the other side of this um, where men who have low testosterone and low libido started on Clomid and they see an improvement in these areas. Um, so the reason that you may not feel like your testosterone went up, there's a couple of moving parts here. So Clomid acts in an estrogenic way in the liver and it will increase your production of sex hormone binding globulin. That's going to bind up your testosterone and you, will, you may have a lower free testosterone than before you started, depending on the individual. Now the other way that this can work is that the Clomid acts as a estrogen agonist in some tissues and an estrogen antagonist in some tissues. So because of this, it can be somewhat unpredictable. It can cause some mood changes, irritability, and even mood swings. Um, it can also cause some floaters in the, if it's used in the long term. So this has to do with depriving the ocular tissue of estrogen 
and that's thought to lead to the development of some of these floaters. So for those reasons, I don't like to see people using this long term, uh, just because we don't want to deprive certain tissues in the body of estrogen for you know, the foreseeable future. Um, and anytime that you have estrogen modulation or lowering of estrogen, you can have some mood changes, whether that's depression, anxiety, insomnia. So those are things that we do sometimes see if someone is taking a, a Clomid protocol um, or if someone has been pre previously prescribed Clomid. Next question is, what are your thoughts on screening the TRT population with CCTA rather than a CAC score? Um, so for the listeners, uh, CAC score is basically a CT of your heart, a CAT scan of your heart, and that's going to detect calcification. And why this is important is because when you have plaque deposits, part of what the body does to protect itself is to calcify or harden those so that they become more stable plaque. Uh, but when this happens, we know that a process called atherosclerosis, meaning plaque buildup in the arteries, is occurring. Now, with a CAC score, that CT scan, you're not going to see soft plaque. So by the time that a CAC score is picking up that you have plaque buildup in the arteries, that has already been going on for a number of years. So this may be a five or 10 year lagging indicator depending on how fast this is progressing and calcifying. Now a CCTA, it is a more sensitive test. Um, and in terms of how a CCTA is different, it's going to use some contrast dye. And because of that, you're gonna be able to see areas of narrowing in the arteries that are indicative of soft plaque. So it's going to pick things up sooner because it's a more sensitive test. Now, if you are 20 years old and you're getting a CCTA or calcium score, I really don't expect to see anything there. It's probably gonna be a calcium score of zero, no stenosis in the arteries. Now, if you are 40, and you get a CAC score and it's zero. I'm also not very surprised because it should be zero at 40, otherwise you would have been laying down significant plaque in your early 30s. If you get a CCTA at 40, that might make a little bit more sense regardless of if someone is on TRT or not. Um, that's not gonna be the deciding factor on the test for me, it's gonna be what are the risk factors. Um, there is one study um, that looked at testosterone replacement and found an association with faster plaque progression. Um, but the question I have about that is, you know, where were these individuals' blood pressures? Where were these individuals' lipids? Um, how metabolically healthy were these people? Did they have insulin resistance? What was their body mass index? Because you want to look at the totality of risk factors and also the family history. So if I have someone who has a family history of heart disease, then it probably makes sense to get a CCTA if they have the resources to do so, to pick up on something sooner rather than later. If someone is 60 years old, they don't have the resources to get a CCTA, they wanna know, you know, do I have plaque that's been laid down? Then a lot of times a calcium score, then a lot of times a calcium score makes sense because you can get an idea of what rate they're laying down plaque at compared to that age group, and we have good data on that. Uh, next question is, does supplementing with 5-HTP increase serotonin levels in the brain? Um, and this is a good question because peripherally produced serotonin does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So you hear a lot about, you know, 90% of your serotonin is made in the gut, and 
while it's true that the gut does produce a majority of the serotonin, peripherally you don't see a physical crossing of that into the blood brain, through the blood brain barrier into the brain, but you do see some crosstalk there because there's the gut brain axis that is very important in um, things like your mental health and not just your gut health. So 5-HTP is believed to cross the blood brain barrier and then from there it is converted into the serotonin. So the answer is yes. Um, to give a little bit more context, you know, why would someone potentially want to increase their serotonin? Usually it is to treat things like anxiety or depression. And because we know that raising levels of serotonin is going to kind of quiet those things, generally give a bit of a lift in mood if somebody is experiencing the signs or symptoms of anxiety or depression. Now it's important to know that um, it is strictly caused, uh, it is strictly anxiety or depression and not another disorder that's causing that. For example, hypothyroid can certainly mimic uh, depression. Hyperthyroid can certainly drive anxiety because your heart may be beating 160 beats per minute. So there's always a differential diagnosis to go through, but to answer that question simply, yes, taking 5-HTP will raise serotonin levels. Uh, next, is it possible to lower sex hormone binding globulin when on a hormonal contraceptive to free up more testosterone? Uh, and the answer there is yes. There's a couple ways to go about this. Um, I would assume this is asking about a oral contraceptive, and those are known to greatly increase levels of sex hormone binding globulin. Um, and a simple way to lower that SHBG would be to transition to either a birth control patch or to a IUD. Um, the copper IUD is going to be a non-hormonal contraceptive option for long-term birth control. Um, supplements such as boron or stinging nettle also can have some effect in lowering SHBG and possibly freeing up some testosterone from that protein itself by occupying the binding site. The data is not particularly strong there, but we do see sometimes a 20% or so drop in the sex hormone binding globulin if someone is supplementing with boron. And there are also boron non-responders, so someone will be taking 10 milligrams of boron per day and we don't see the SHBG move to any large degree. Um, another question here about SHBG is what is the best way to drop SHBG? So SHBG is not something that you necessarily want to decrease. You can decrease it in a lot of different ways. Um, it's decreased a lot of times in people who are metabolically unhealthy, overweight, or with obesity, people with insulin resistance. Um, almost always you're going to see a very low level of SHBG in people with diabetes. Um, so it's not always something you want to drop, but let's say you have a SHBG of 100. Um, the way to potentially drop that, as we mentioned, would be something like boron, something like stinging nettle. If you were on a very low or a zero carbohydrate diet, adding some carbohydrates back into your diet can provide some insulin signaling that's going to also lower the SHBG production by the liver. Um, but it depends on the individual why you would want to necessarily lower this or some individuals why you may want to raise it if they're having symptoms of hyperandrogenism. But it seems to be mostly men who are wanting to lower the SHPG to get more free tests. Um, and a better approach may just be to see what you can optimize to increase your natural testosterone production so that you have an optimal free testosterone and not worrying so much about the sex hormone binding globulin. 
another somewhat specific question along the same topic. Does olive oil really increase your sex hormone binding globulin? Um, and what oil or fats to use for cooking that will not increase sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG? So the data on olive oil and SHBG comes from some association studies, some nutritional epidemiology, which is very messy. Uh, but those who are eating a more Mediterranean style diet, they do tend to have a higher SHBG. This is probably because a Mediterranean style diet is associated with better metabolic health and better metabolic health is also associated with a higher SHBG. So if you are just cooking with olive oil or adding some olive oil to your salad, I don't think that you need to worry about it spiking up your SHBG, stealing all your testosterone. Um, as far as what oils or fats you use for cooking, personally I use uh, either olive oil or avocado oil. Um, I don't really have a preference when it comes to what oil. Um, cooking everything in butter or lard going to be a lot of saturated fat, probably not the best for liver health. I assume, assuming you're in a calorie surplus um, or assuming you're much like the general population. Um, so small amounts of things like you know butter are fine. Um, and you certainly don't want to eat in excess of calories regardless of where the source is coming from. So if in theory, it's possible to overdo it with something like olive oil or canola oil, any kind of oil really. Um, it's just the calories that are going to affect that. Um, but if somebody is eating a high fat, low carb diet, if you switch those two and you move to a higher carbohydrate, lower fat diet, in general, you should see the sex hormone binding globulin come down because there's gonna be a little bit more insulin signaling going on. Uh, next question, and this is a really interesting one. How do you approach or deal with someone of an old school mindset who's never trusted much in doctors? Um, and you know, the question is, how do you approach them? Um, let's say this is a you know, family member. Um, I, I think this person is maybe asking about they have a family member who doesn't care much for doctors. Um, you could just simply tell them that you are concerned about their health or share with them some things that you've done and improved your health. Um, if this is myself in the office and I'm talking to a person who um, doesn't trust much in doctors, then a lot of times it is the education and the evidence that you provide that would make or break the case for you know, the, the plan that you're putting together. So we're a big fan of shared decision-making. And if someone wants to avoid things that are unnatural, you know, such as pharmaceuticals, we can put together the best plan that we can using things that are in the natural category and what everyone considers natural is a little bit different. Um, you know, it's very unnatural to go into the ER and you know, if you're having a heart attack and get a stent put in your artery, uh, but that's what most people would do in that situation. But when you're talking about being preventative or improving your health, there's a different spectrum of what people are willing to do to improve their health, whether that's with lifestyle, medications, or supplements. So. We have a shared decision-making process, and if someone says, I want to, let's use you know, cholesterol as an example. There's going to be a genetic set point of where your cholesterol production is, and depending on dietary variables and your lifestyle, that's going to be modifiable to some degree. So can you take a, you know, let's say an ApoB of over 200 
and through lifestyle, get it down into a optimal range for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, say an ApoB below 80. That's kind of where I like to see it for primary prevention, meaning someone doesn't have a lot of risk factors, they don't have a history of cardiovascular disease, no significant family history, they're metabolically healthy, that's a pretty good place for them to be. Um, can you get them there from 200 to 80? Probably not. So you just have to be honest with them and say, we're probably not gonna be able to get you into the low risk category using just supplementation. There's probably gonna be some medication involved if you want to get to that level. Now we can put together the best plan we can from a supplement, from a natural, from a lifestyle standpoint, but it's likely not going to convey the same benefits or the same risk reduction as using something pharmaceutical. Um, and that's really all you can do is be honest, present the data, talk about the benefits and risks, and you wanna take their opinion and their beliefs into and incorporate that into the treatment plan that you put together. Someone says, what are some good supplements for joint health? So this is an interesting one, and there's some data recently looking at the, the collagen peptides and collagen proteins, um, and those things tend to, in general, reduce signs and symptoms of osteoarthritis, so things like joint pain and joint stiffness. And it's going to be quite a small effect. It's not going to be like taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, not that you should take high doses of ibuprofen for osteoarthritis, um, but it's not going to be a magic bullet by any means. Um, it does seem to contribute to connective tissue health. Uh, if you look at some the studies where they're looking at the tendon cross-sectional area, meaning the, the thickness of the tendon in response to some sort of stimulus, like an exercise or a load, they're trying to emulate kind of what happens when people are training. And you look at one group that's supplementing with these collagen peptides, the other group is not supplementing with the collagen peptides or protein. And you see a slightly better increase, a slightly larger increase in that cross-sectional area of the tendon whenever those collagen proteins are incorporated. Um, so there does seem to be some interesting data there. It'll be interesting to see if it's reproducible. Um, and that will really steer whether this is something that can really be beneficial and is really going to be regenerative for slowing the progression of something like osteoarthritis. But in the short term, there does appear to be some mild benefit for reducing pain and stiffness in things like osteoarthritis for the collagen, protein, and peptides. Someone says, uh, I thought turmeric could reduce estrogen, but can it reduce DHT too? Um, so yes, in general, it's going to have a fairly small effect on DHT, um, but some people are going to be sensitive, have really good biofeedback to even small variations in their hormone levels. Um, and the data on turmeric and modulating estrogen, it, I think a lot of that comes from in vitro data. So when you're looking at cells in a lab and applying either turmeric or various components from turmeric to those and seeing how they're affected, um, there is some interesting data on things like endometrial hyperplasia, which could be of interest for things like treating endometriosis. So the human data is not quite there yet. There's no big randomized controlled trial that's showing you know, turmeric is reversing endometriosis, um, but it may have a hormone modulating effect. Um, um, there's a lot of interesting things about, uh, well, is it improving the health of the liver out there? Um, I don't know for sure one way or the other if it is, but if it is improving liver health, if something 
improves liver health. If somebody, for example, stops drinking alcohol, um, loses weight and reduces the visceral adiposity in the liver, then you're going to be able to process and eliminate things like estrogens at a more efficient rate. So that's going to modulate your hormone metabolism. You're gonna metabolize your hormones generally in a more healthful way. So that could be one way that it would reduce estradiol. Um, and then someone asks, is there a drug that's more effective than semaglutide? Um, so the answer here is maybe. Um, the initial data on terzepatide seems to indicate that it is slightly more effective than semaglutide. Uh, but at the end of the day, is semaglutide useless? No, they're both, uh, they both appear to be very effective drugs. Now, interestingly, we have a several years of data on these and other GLP-1 agonists, the trizepatide is a combination, um, but with the semaglutide, um, someone else asked, are there any downsides to semaglutide? And there certainly can be, uh, the main one being nausea. So most people are wanting to lose weight to improve their quality of life, but if you are walking around throwing up, you're dehydrated because the medication is making you sick, then that is really not improving your quality of life. However, in these studies, about 90 to 95% of people are able to continue taking the medication. It seems that that nausea tends to lift over time. And one strategy to reduce that is to start with an even lower dose than is recommended in the study. So typically they're doing a auto titration every four weeks. The dose goes up, the dose goes up, the dose goes up. When in actual clinical practice, you can start at half of that initial dose or even lower and you can increase the dose more slowly and only when the weight loss is not occurring at the rate that you and the patient have decided on in the plan. So there's ways to kind of get around that particular downside. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is the increase in exertional heart rate um, that is accompanied with the higher doses of semaglutide. And this was seen in the studies as well, I believe. I'm not really sure what the potential mechanism is there, um, some people have reported fatigue, and that's usually if the energy deficit is too large. Uh, if you have someone and they go on a diet, they're just going to tend to move less. You're going to be a little bit more tired because you're not consuming as much energy, not taking in as many calories. So there certainly are some downsides to semaglutide, but for the most part, there's ways to mitigate those. What do you think about the negative health effects of red meat? Um, so this is another kind of messy epidemiological nutrition question, and I, I think it depends on the context of and the definition of red meat. So are we talking about just processed red meat? Are we talking about just Slim Jims? If someone's eating eight ounces or 16 ounces of Slim Jims per day, that's probably going to have a net negative effect on health. And I think that's where we see the associations with things like colon cancer come in when people are taking in high amounts of processed foods and as part of that, processed red meats. And really the problem there is the excess of calories. Now, if someone is having a lean cut of beef that is also say six or eight ounces, I don't think that's going to convey the same negative health effects that something like a Slim Jim would. Now there are some people who are very sensitive to saturated fat and that will tend to raise their LDL cholesterol because higher intakes of dietary fat will degrade those LDL receptors in the liver that clear the cholesterol from the bloodstream. But it's all individual um, and if somebody is feeling and performing well 
eating a diet that has a significant amount of red meat. We can certainly talk about what some of the nutritional epidemiology shows. You can find meta-analyses that show higher saturated fat causes heart disease. You can also find meta-analyses that show that higher saturated fat does not cause heart disease. So my take on it is it's probably going to be about 75% related to the total calorie intake. So what foods you use to get to those calories is less important than the total calories. And then the other 25% of the diet is going to be, okay, what is the quality of those foods? What are the macronutrients? What are the micronutrients? Um, and there's going to be some individual variation. Some people are going to do better on a lower carbohydrate diet. Some people are going to do better on a, a lower fat diet with higher carbohydrates. So there's a lot of nuance to that. Uh, do I think everyone should avoid red meat? No. Do I think everyone needs to eat red meat every day? Also no. So not a very exciting answer, but I'm kind of in the middle here where there's many different paths to dietary health and dietary success. Uh, someone asks, how many steps per day should I take? So uh, this question is fairly straightforward. Um, and you see a lot of times, you know, X thousand steps per day and health benefits, X thousand steps per day. Um, and, and you tend to see a linear increase up to about 10,000 steps. So if someone is aiming for 10,000 steps per day, um, that can be doable for some people. If they have a very physical job, they're up on their feet quite a bit. Some people may even be taking something like 20,000 steps per day, for example. Other people who have a sedentary office job, they may have to make a special effort to get up, move around more so that they're getting those steps in, so that they're burning more calories throughout the day and, and being more mobile. Because we know that increased physical activity, and it seems that any increase in physical activity has some benefits for your overall health. And there was an interesting study that looked at this, the number of steps and then the dementia risk in the United Kingdom. And they saw that just shy of 10,000 steps per day was the sweet spot in terms of reducing dementia risk. Reduce it by about 50%. Um, but they did see even as little as just shy of 4,000 steps per day also reduced dementia risk quite significantly. So if 10,000 seems like it's too far out of reach, you don't have to get to 10,000 or there's no benefit. You can certainly have benefit by taking even, you know, say a thousand steps more than you're taking on average now and building from there and making small sustainable changes to increase your overall activity. Next question is, what do you think about EPA for depression? Um, so this is interesting because a lot of people are talking about, you know, fish oil and fish oil for depression, EPA and DHA. And I should note that it seems to be the EPA component that is what is beneficial for treating things like depression. In several studies, there was another one where four grams of EPA were actually given to uh, patients with obesity and elevated C-reactive protein, and that was found to be effective for depression. Um, other studies have found no effect. You know, if, I think there's some studies in older populations where you give them fish oil and it doesn't prevent depression or doesn't improve depression. So there's probably a dose-dependent response there. You need a fairly high dose of EPA if you're looking for antidepressant effects. Probably depends on your baseline inflammatory status as well. Because we know things like neuroinflammation are implicated in uh, a number of different uh, mood disorders and, and mental health pathologies. Um, but as far as EPA, there are some interesting side effects to that, um, some potential downsides, just like with any intervention. So 
when someone says, oh, everyone should be taking fish oil, you have to be taking fish oil. Um, I don't agree with that approach. Um, if you're looking at EPA from the risk side, um, EPA by itself, there is an increased risk of bleeding events. EPA by itself, there is a significant increase in the risk of atrial fibrillation. And these came from some of the trials where they're looking at EPA compared to something like a placebo, preventing or reducing the incidence of cardiovascular disease. Uh, interestingly, when you have a EPA and DHA combination, it doesn't appear to have quite the same bleeding risk. For example, patients given EPA and DHA, even prior to like open heart surgeries, they don't have an increase in bleeding risk. Um, you do see a attenuation of that risk for AFib if you have EPA and DHA and you're giving just those, but you still see a little bit of an increase in the risk for AFib, even with just EPA and DHA. So it really depends on you know, what that person's risk factors are. You know, do they have a family history of AFib? Are they particularly worried about that? Um, and then you know, if you're focusing on treating the depression, you know, how severe is that depression? Is it something that's you know, very mild? Is it something that needs a stronger lever to pull? Um, is it situational? Are we just using the EPA to attenuate the response to a stressful situation? So there's a number of different variables to look at there. In general, I think EPA does help with depression to some degree. It's not superbly effective, but it is effective in some of the studies out there. It probably depends on those C-reactive protein levels. Next question is, statins lower testosterone. Is this something I should be worried about since I am prescribed a statin? Um, so there are various opinions on this. There are some meta-analyses that show no difference in testosterone levels with statins. There are also some that say that statins do in fact lower testosterone. And I'm more of the opinion that they do have a potential to lower testosterone levels but if you look into the study and the actual results and see how much is it really moving the testosterone levels, you see usually about 10 or maybe 20 nanogram per deciliter of a drop in testosterone. So for the average person who has maybe a testosterone level of five or 600, it's not going to be clinically significant or it's not something that they're going to really feel the difference in. Now maybe if someone is training for the Olympics or they're an elite athlete, um, they have a little bit of mild dyslipidemia, but they're really concerned about their performance, testosterone levels. Maybe if that's more important to them than looking at things like their long-term cardiovascular health, assuming that you can't get these ApoBs and LDLs into range with other interventions, then maybe that's a consideration. Maybe I don't prescribe someone who's an Olympic athlete a statin because it could decrease their testosterone level a little bit. But if you're looking at the average person in the population, they're going to likely do just fine in terms of testosterone with a, a statin medication. Um, they've actually looked at these a little bit for women with signs of hyperandrogenism, and they decrease testosterone and also free testosterone and could be potentially useful as adjuncts and things like you know, PCOS or some instances where there is a, um, a need to decrease the androgens and also improve a lipid profile, but again, there are a number of different statins out there and you want to be very careful about the ones that are being prescribed because there's a major difference between the lipophilic statins and the hydrophilic statins. And we're seeing a couple studies here and there scattered that are showing some warnings of cognitive dysfunction with the lipophilic statins. 
um, certainly the benefit of reducing you know, something like a heart attack or a stroke is going to be net positive for cognition, um, but we want to prescribe as carefully as we can when there is a medication that's indicated. And our last question of the day is, what is the best hack for better cognition? So this is always interesting, and we get a lot of questions from the, the biohacking community who is about optimizing everything. And really the best hack for cognition is gonna come down to about 75% your lifestyle. So if you're not getting good sleep, then your cognition is not gonna be optimal. If you're not managing your stress optimally, cognition is not gonna be optimal. If you are not metabolically healthy, your cognition is not gonna be optimal. I, I think there was a recent study this year actually that looked at those with insulin resistance or prediabetes, and they had a brain age on imaging that was about 10 years older, or that brain atrophy had progressed about 10 years beyond what you would expect based on their biological age. So their brain tissue was aging or deteriorating faster than you would expect due to that insulin resistance. Now, uh, for to answer the question and say, well, what is a real hack for cognition? You're doing all this other stuff. You're healthy, you're sleeping well, your stress is managed. What can you do for cognition? Um, my favorite hack and one of the most interesting studies is your cell phone. Get rid of it. So your cell phone, most of us have them close to us, on us at all times. Uh, and the study that I'm thinking of looked at undergrad students and their proximity to their cell phone and how they scored on a couple different cognitive tasks. So when the phone was in their pocket, right next to them, the worst scores across the board. When the phone was in a bag, but the bag was nearby, their scores got a little bit better. But when they had the phone in a completely other room, completely different room, that's when their cognition scores were the highest. So for most people, you know, their workflow when they're trying to be productive is getting interrupted perhaps by the phone. Even just having the phone near you seems to present some sort of, of a distraction where you can't target all your mental capacity to the task at hand. So my favorite hack for productivity is to remove the phone from the room. All right, that was fun. There was a lot of good questions that were sent in, a lot of good direct messages, a lot of good comments. Um, if you have a question that we would, you would like us to address that wasn't answered, please leave that in the comments section. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Gillette Health Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.